This is Vermont Made, the show where Vermont creatives tell me, Desmond Peoples, all about one thing they've made. In this episode, I speak with novelist Anne Davila Cardinal, who last year received a Vermont Arts Council creation grant to support her first novel for middle grade readers, a horror story called Dry Bones, which is now on submission to publishers. Anne writes prolifically for all ages, so we wound up talking about a number of other books she's written, including The Storyteller's Death, a novel for adults that's hitting shelves this year on October 4th. Anne treats us to a brief reading from The Storyteller's Death at the end of the show, but first we discuss writing across age groups, the appeal of horror to the grieving, and the importance of representing Vermont's changing communities in stories for young people. Well, it's about a young girl named Mara from Queens, New York. Um, Her father has just died, and she lives with her mother, her brother, and their dog. And they can't afford to live in New York City anymore. So they inherit a house in Vermont from an uncle of the father that they never knew. And so they're going to move to Vermont. And Mara would be okay with this, except for there's a stipulation that there are no dogs. So she has to give up her beloved dog, Ezekiel, when she gets into Vermont. And when they're bringing him to the pound, he gets loose. And so, um, you know, she doesn't know where he is. Her life is upheaved. And um, they move to the house in Morrisville, Vermont, which is slightly creepy, Um, you know. And so she's adjusting to she has to go to a new school. She has to she has no friends there. So she's going through this adjustment while grieving for her her father and her and her dog. But she makes a friend um, with a a student named Maverick, non-binary, a grade above her. And they, um, you know, they sort of find solace in each other. And then th- weird things start happening in the house. And so um, um, Mara and Maverick have to solve sort of the mystery because um, there's a demon who had used to live in the house. And if you his bones are all put together, he comes back to life and, and is going to take his revenge on the town. And so um, it all sort of began with stories in my own house in Morrisville, like a tombstone we found in the walkway. Um and there's this Vermont basements are terrible, mm-hmm. and so there's this horrible um, hole dug under the, the the extension of our house that I call Shelob's Cave. You know, from Lord of the Rings, the huge spider. spider. Yes. Yeah. Um, so these were all sort of things I brought into this this novel. But I really wanted to sort of deal with grief when you're a child. My father died when I was eight, um, and you know you're trying to figure out what that all means and sort of the age when you start to realize that these things are, are, you know, your family's not always going to be there. Um, but I also wanted to show, you know, friendship and, and, you know, her love dogs are very important to me. And so that they play an important part in this book. Um, but also the adjustment of, of, of Puerto Rican girl from Queens sort of adjusting to rural Vermont. Um, so I had a, a really good time writing it. It was a, a wonderful experience. Are you originally from Queens? No, actually, I'm from Manhattan. Manhattan, but, yeah. okay. My father is originally from Long Island City. Oh, moved yeah. Moved to rural Vermont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from there. I'm from New York. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, when'd you come here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, somebody said to me, what brings you to Vermont? I said, a big U-Haul. <laughs> 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 Let's get some coffee. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, no, I've been here 30 years, so I'm adjusted. But um, I wanted to sort of address that. Um, through a child's eyes, you know. Well, yeah, you've raised children here. 
um, uh, you're um, yourself Puerto Rican of mixed heritage, um, like the main character in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so these parallels, um, and you know, and also uh, this book parallels your own um, experience, as you said, with grief. Your father died when you were very young, mm-hmm. um, and and you've spoken um, in previous conversations with me about how, um, for you, the book is more about that part of um, this character's life, about grief and how to recover from grief, um, rather than about the other elements of her everyday life, who she is, where she is, um, and the complexities of being a uh, different person wherever, you know, in a new community. Right. Um, So can can you talk about how you um, decided to balance those elements of the story and why? Sure. I mean, I think I always, all of my books have some element of myself in them. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you write what you know, um, and then you sort of expand from there. And so I like to, I did not see myself in books when I was a kid, um, straddling these two worlds and dealing with this, this loss. Um, and my mother was an alcoholic. That's another thing I sort of often write about are the things that influenced me as a kid and, um, that I had to overcome. And I wanted kids to be able to see themselves in this in my work. So that's the big hope when you're writing for kids is that you can sort of, you know, but to bring it into a modern context um, is fun because, you know, otherwise it's memoir, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so Charlotte's web was very, very important to me. I said to my friend, Will Alexander, he actually was a recipient a couple years ago. He's amazing. And he's also Cuban. He's so he, we have a lot of things in common, but he, I said to him one day, I said, what? He said, why don't you want to write middle grade? And I said, well, I'm afraid because, I mean, and what I said to him was, um, I was clutching my copy of Charlotte's Web when they took my father's body out of the house. And he was like jolted. And he said, oh, my God, you need to write about this. And and so Charlotte's Web is like a manual of how to deal with death. I didn't know why I was reading it over and over again, but I was. And so the idea of being able to write a story for kids at that age is is was daunting to me it's like you know this is this is such an important time for them um that's when they fall in love with reading that's when they realize that everything isn't so safe um and so the idea of speaking to them was intimidating so um but this book and the grant enabled me to to do that you uh have also spoken about um this how this mode of writing for at middle grade um that age is a new um, age group for you. You've written mostly for young adults and also um, you have a book for adults coming out, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about uh, in a bit. But let's talk about how the middle grade writing um, process has been different than um, writing for other age groups for you. Um, you know, it's an interesting group to reach. Um, and they, they're not going to handle a lot of um, pontification, you know, you get, and no morals. People think children's books are supposed to teach you something or have more. Those kids can see that a mile away mm-hmm. and they're gone. Um, so you want a pure, it's a pure story. You know, you got to start, you know, um, just getting right to the heart of the story. And I like that. I've always been a spare writer. Um, and so I, I, I sort of took to that form. Um, but it was completely new for me. And I, when I, um, when I said, you know, I did say to somebody in the MFA and writing for children program when I was there, I said, I, I'm never going to write middle grade. And they said, well, you know, be careful what you, what you say. And, uh, I, 
when I, you know, I told Will I wouldn't do it. And then I heard about the grant. And then I said, okay, you know, if I do this, I want it to, to support something new, you know, because I'm a mid-career writer. I wanted it to, to, to try some different form because, you know, writing is a muscle. And the best thing you can do for a muscle is work the ones around it, you know, when you're not working the main muscle. And so I said, okay, I will apply for this grant. Uh, I wrote a plot idea for this book. And I said, if I get it, I'll write it. And if I don't, I never will. And so I got it and I said, okay, clearly I meant to write this book. Um, and I took to the form like I couldn't, I mean, it just came out almost fully formed. And uh, the 11 year old voice came very smoothly. And so I'm thinking I might have found like a new thing for me because I enjoyed it so much. And actually this book ends with a, a sort of a hint of a second. So we'll see what happens with that. Oh, okay. All right. Sequel yeah. in, in the works. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm interested in the um, in how it connected to your experience as a child in grief. How is it looking back on um, grief uh, from so long ago? Uh, what was it like to to try and create something out of it for the very same age that you were when you were experiencing that right. grief? You know, what's interesting is that the, I chose to do that through horror. And the reason is because when I was that age, horror got me through. And and I have a theory of why, um, you know, because my life was, I had no control over it. And it was going to hell in a handbasket. And um, when I read horror or when I watched horror movies, it was like, oh, well, um, my life might suck, but at least there's no zombies, you know? And um you know, there's no evil clowns today banging on the window. And, and so it made me feel better. It's like you see these people in these impossible situations with these horrible creatures and situations, you know, like a war of the worlds. They're harvesting their blood for fertilizer. It's like, oh, well, OK, my life is better than that. <laughs> and so it made me feel it brought me comfort in a weird way. I would go down to Puerto Rico in the summer and I would have a pile of horror comics. And my aunt, my aunt, would go, ay, Annie. What this is horrible. Why are you? Does your mother know you're reading this? I said, who do you think bought them for me? Hmm. You know, and so those those comforted me. Um, and so I think it makes sense for me to to tell my first middle grade story through that genre um, because it it and there are still kids out there were kids like me you know out there who love it. Um, it's actually, Stranger Things is what put middle grade horror on the map. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, so it's the perfect timing. Yeah, because that's the age group when they started, um, and it is, it, you know, they think that everybody thinks they want to protect kids and give them, you know, teach them something. And, and they don't, like I said before, they don't want that. So, you know, they like being scared. It reminds them they're safe. Well, um, I don't recall Charlotte's Web being a horror. It gets pretty intense. Okay. I know. And that rat freaked me out. Okay. <laughs> that rat freaked me out. No, Charlotte's Web, that was, that was, I was a little younger, um, you know, because when Mara's father dies, she's, she's eight or nine. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, it was like, and I had three brothers, older brothers, and they would watch the, the, um, all those monster movies. And I slept with the blanket around my neck for, to protect from vampires until I was like 14. Uh huh. If you had to be trapped in a horror movie, in one horror movie, which oh. one do you think it would be? Boy, that's a really good question. Something with a lot of weapons. 
You know, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I think uh, any of the ones from the 80s, because those people were so stupid. It's like you're yelling, don't go in the basement. I mean, I wouldn't go in the basement. I wouldn't go. Oh, you, you think know? you would, you wouldn't be subject oh, to the same? Oh, hell no. <laughs> I've been trained my whole life. Those people are stupid. And, you know, so anyway, I think, um, I don't know, they all, as long as it's a nightmare and Elm Street doesn't come anywhere near me. Um, probably creep show. Because it's old school. So, Dry Bones, we've talked about how uh, the, the main... Um, the main focus for the character is uh, her grieving uh, the loss of her father, right. and um, and yet, and but the story is also existing within this um, context of real world Vermont today, which right. is um, a which is a quickly changing um, community. Uh, and so, I think we talked a little bit about this. How you know earlier in we talked about balancing. Um, between those elements of the story. I mean, so in one sense, I honored my own story being half and sort of adapting. And then I realized that 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 story of not quite fitting in is universal. And, you know, it still happens, especially when you're kids, you're trying to fit in and whatever. Um, But Vermont is, um, my son's 25 and I raised him in Morrisville. And, uh, you know, Vermont has changed a lot in his lifetime, let alone in mine. Um, and so watching that happen, first of all, I, I have great faith in, in Gen Z. I can't wait for them to run the country. I mean, seriously, they're, 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 they're a little bitter, but they have good reason to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I love writing stories for them because they're, they, they're more accepting of things like, um, diversity and, um, you know, gender is a spectrum and they have no problem with pronouns and they have no, you know, they're just, they just adapt, they're rolling with it. And so their perspective is wise. And um, so I've been watching that in Vermont, you know, our local library has a a, a queer um, book group and, and um, I have brought friends to sort of present to them. And so I, I like the idea of representing who they are now. Um, Not, what I grew up with, which was very different, you know, and so to, to, to sort of capture the, the way Vermont is changing and how this young girl can adapt from an urban environment into rural Vermont and really how so many of the feelings you have are, you're going to have them anywhere. Um, but it was fun. It was especially fun to write it about my own house because I could bring in those, those true stories about, you know, the things we experienced. Um, except for late at night when I was working on it and I hear noises. So, but you know, anyway, I love, I love the idea of writing for that generation because I think they're very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, there are not a lot of stories that show um, young Vermonters in their full diversity in their changing world as it really appears. And I think this could go for um, rural America in general, because the same changes that are happening here are happening all over the country. Um, so is this the first time you've written um, kind of with that intent about your home community? Um, no. I have a book coming out in January called Break Up From Hell. And um, that is based in Stowe, Vermont. Oh. And uh, it, it is a trip. It's a horror rom-com. And I had a blast with that one, too. But I, I, I said to my husband, I opened a hell mouth in downtown Stowe. And he said, how is that different from foliage season? 
<laughs> it's like, yes, I understand that. But, you know, because we lived in Stowe for probably 15 years. And, um, and to be able to do it, that was the first time I wrote in Vermont. Usually I write about Puerto Rico because that to me is incredibly important and it isn't written about enough. It's a very small island. Um, but I wanted to do this YA based in, in, in Stowe and sort of deal with the things that teenagers deal with. And, and my son grew up in Stowe and then and Morrisville. And so he helped a lot with that. And I broke all the stereotypes with that one. Um, I have a, um, a queer redneck with a black skier boyfriend. I just decided to just, you know, any, any Vermont stereotypes I blew up, but um, that, that is a blast. And that was the first time I did that. And then it felt like, okay, now I can do a middle grade and, and it's a little it's darker. It doesn't have the humor, you know, because that other one was a rom-com. But um, I sort of liked it, you know, to drive through Stowe and think about what happens there, you know, mm-hmm. or to be in my house and think about Mara and her story. Um, so I, I think this will be a new thing for me as writing based in Vermont. Interesting. I also really appreciate the the uh, practice of of publicly breaking these Vermont stereotypes. You know, you're an author with very wide reach. And so people are going to be reading these books and, and that are set in Vermont, seeing these characters that, you know, um, I mean, the last time I think there was a cover page about Vermont, it was the Rolling Stones, uh, Vermonter, oh, the Maple God. Yeah. heroin. The heroin. Yeah. So, and me as a Vermonter of color who grew up here, like, I know that there are exactly those characters you're talking about, the queer net redneck with the black skier boyfriend. I have three friends like that, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. So it's to, to share those stories and to share those stories from the kids' perspectives, the kids who are growing up living those, that is, that's, um, yeah. I'm like applauding. <laughs> she's, she's actually, Micah, the main character that's also Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, she lives with her abuela. And uh, yeah, so I, I, like I said, I bring myself in, into it, but I also want to um, encompass the world as I see it now. Because I honestly, um, my next book is dealing with who we are as women after a certain age, you know, and how I, when I Googled cool grandmas, I, you know, you get coastal grandma aesthetic. You don't get the punk rock mm-hmm. grandma. And I know a lot of punk rock grandmas. Thank you very much. And so, you know, I, I, I just think that the, the, the way we're represented in media needs to change. Um, and I hope that in my small way I can contribute. So, um, can you tell but, us a little bit more about that next work? Sure. Um, right now it's titled The Ecstasy of Tere Sanchez. And it's about a, um, a woman who, who um, she's 60. She retires from her academic job um, to be with her husband and he dies two months later. And her kid's grown, and she's like, well, who am I? I'm not an academic. I'm, I'm not a wife. Um, my kid has grown. And um, she starts sort of coming into her own, and she starts levitating. The first line is, the first time I levitated, I was in the garden. Mm-hmm. And so she, she finds out she was descended from St. Teresa of Avila, who levitated. And so she makes this pilgrimage to Avila, Spain. And it's about her sort of explore, exploration of who she is and who women are, um, after when society tells us we're invisible and and useless. And in fact, I am supposedly descended from a sibling of St. Teresa of Avila. So really? this is, yes. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, Davila? Yep. It's, that okay. means de Avila, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I just, I had always heard that when I was a kid. I've wanted to go to Avila since I was five. It's another walled city in Spain. And um, so I'm doing it. I'm going by myself for three weeks in November for, for pilgrimage to sort of write this book. Wow. Um 
But it it is, you know, again, it's like bringing up things. And I never really did this research into her. And now I'm lost in that world. And that's the thing about writing. You know, when I wrote mm-hmm. Dry Bones, I read every piece of middle grade horror I could find. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that approach. I love just really enveloping yourself in a subject. So, um the ecstasy of Tere Sanchez, that's going to, do you have any idea when that's going to come out or you're still Yes, in, in March of 24. Oh, okay. okay. But the title might change, we'll see. Um, but it's, you know, this is like sort of the, the, the early stages, but I'm like lost. My tattoo artist turned me on to all this mysticism research uh-huh. and I have to put that in there. So now I'm sort of like lost in that, in that research. It's very interesting stuff. Mm. Um, and that, you know, Again, it's like, I think if you're writing about something that's important to you personally, it comes through in the work, mm-hmm. you know? Well, yeah, I mean, the research process being so consuming, it's, it's a very, uh, there's nothing like it. Yeah. I, I think. Well, there's, so there's this book coming out in 2024, but then there's also um, The Storyteller's Death um, and, well, then also break the up Dry from Bones hell. and Break Up From Hell. <laughs> well, Dry Bones, I have to sell. That's oh, on right, submission. right. That's in submission. But yeah. I mean, it's going to sell like really. So, <laughs> yeah. So look out. Um, OK, that's a lot of books coming out um, in quick succession. Not to mention it's been three books out in the past recent or, or just two. Just two. Two. OK. Um, well, so let's talk about this moment in your career. Um, it kind of uh, overflowing with <laughs> with inspiration and, and, um, opportunity to fulfill that inspiration. So how did you get there? Um, I just, I started writing and here at Vermont college and, uh, I started to get, um, into it. I, I was afraid anything that's worth doing. I'm petrified of. And so I was very afraid of it, but I did it in this sort of community with a support. And then I, I took to it. So I, I mean, I've written books that did not, get sold did not get finished you know we all do it you you sort of have these starts fits and starts and um toyed with magazine writing um but writing novels is is joyous for me um because i inhaled them my whole life and so to be able to write them is exciting so once i i came to it late you know my career basically got started at 53 and then it took off you know, so what you're seeing is a culmination of a lot of years. Um, but I have a really strong community. Um, my mentors, my most influential mem- mentors are I'm old enough to be their mother. Mentorship does not have to be somebody older than you. Um, and being open to learning is is so important. So I have this like continuum of mentors. I mentor the people. We help each other. This is what we do. Um and so I, they, they helped give me the strength to do this, but I'm also incredibly stubborn and I refuse to get, you know, you deal with a lot of rejection and people are like, how can you deal with that much rejection? I said, most of what you get is silence when you're on submission, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you, you get some momentum and then it feeds itself, but you never get to sort of sit. And um, Luis Guzman, who's a friend of mine, who is another Vermonter, Puerto Rican, um, I, we were visiting during the pandemic and I, and he said something, you know, I asked what you're doing cause you're not working on movies. And he said, well, I'm, I'm hustling, you know, when he starts talking about all these things, projects he's working on. I said, no, no, wait a minute. You know, you're one of the most successful character actors in the world. You don't get to, to coast. He said, oh, no, Chica, you got to hustle. You, the hustle never ends. And I was like, oh man, you know, it, it doesn't. And so when I have a book that's out with my editor, it could be a couple months. And so I can't just sit there and wait for it. 
and immerse myself in one book, that would be lovely, but I can't. So I go to the next one. And that's why it seems like there's so many happening at once is that I have several going at the same time. And I don't, I can't afford to be precious about it because I really would like to do this full time Mm -hmm. at some point where I'm 70. Well, right. We're here in your office uh, at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. You're the director of recruitment. Is that the title? Yes. How long have you been in this position? Um, uh, this position, I don't remember. I've been at the college for 24 years. 24. I've had a lot of titles, worked in a lot of, you know, I, I, I became a writer on this campus. I built my community in this mm-hmm. campus. Um, um, it is an emotional, uh, it, it's family. So, um but, you know, they all know that that's sort of my goal. I mean, I'm 59 years old. It's like, you know, I would like to, I've been balancing two careers for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that it's, you know, I'm tired. Um, I also went during the pandemic, I was writing and working from home um, full time, but I also uh, had heart electrical heart failure yeah, yeah. Um, and got a pacemaker and all of this was going on at the same time. And, you know, I, I did it and I, I, I feel great, but um Eventually, I'd like to be able to just immerse myself in the writing, but that's a hard thing to do. So we'll see. We'll see. And, and I'm hoping Dry Bones has something, you know, to do with that. A, a series would be lovely. The hustle comment got me thinking, because I know so many authors, you know, at every point in their career who do, they have to fill their non-writing time with um, side hustles and, you know, getting their Patreon going, this kind of stuff. Do you, is like, how much do you feel yourself um, dipping into that other like part of the publishing world um, as your career has has boomed like this? You know, you have to, I mean, I'll probably do freelance editing. I mean, I, I don't think you can ever really do it unless you get something that really hits, which mm-hmm. is the ideal. But I also write screenplays with my son um, and we've had interest. So I have a Hollywood meeting on Monday. You know, it's like Hollywood's even worse than publishing, though. You know, I say it's like dating in my 20s. You know, they're very handsome and flattering and, and, and you just, you know, they tell you they love you and you go to dinner and then the check comes and they don't pay it and they don't they, and they ghost you. You know, it's like that. It That's sort of a anyway. So Hollywood is a challenge. But I also do. I mean, the breakup from hell was IP, meaning they came up. Harper Collins came up with a concept. They had authors I audition. And then, you know, I won the audition and I was hired. But I had way more influence than I thought I was going to. And I had a great time doing it. So IP is a great way to supplement. What does IP stand for? Intellectual property. Okay. I've never heard of that process before. Will you? Um, sure. Do, people don't talk about it. IP is essentially, um, there are packaging companies who come up with concepts um, and then find a writer to do it and do a, a, a novel um, and then present it to a publisher. Um and this one is owned by HarperCollins, so it's not owned by me. I got a portion of, mm-hmm. you know, things that, that gets old or whatever. But they, they generally pay very well. And, and you get, like I said, people think you're doing what they tell you, but you really get much more input than that's why I, I'm the one who chose to base it in Stowe and make her Puerto Rican oh, cool. and, cool. and deal with all that. So it's, um, yeah, I can't see them putting that yeah. in the criteria. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's so me, but, um, it, it is a great way to sort of supplement that, that income mm-hmm. of when you're writing, you know, that the Santa Teresa book is, is a, one of the heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's going to take a lot more time than, than doing something where they hand you the concept. Um, but it, they're, they work different muscles. It's kind of fun. It's like a writing exercise on steroids, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
So there are ways to do that. Also, you know, workshops. Um, I write podcasts, scripted podcasts. In fact, that's what the meeting on Monday is about. And um, so I had a novel I started. It didn't, I, I couldn't quite get it done. It was 80 pages. It was called Title Pull. And um, it's a horror novel based in Puerto Rico. And, um, but I really liked the concept. And I heard about the scripted podcast and I did it as that and it took off. And so, um, and Luis is already attached to, to act in that. And, and so, um, you know, that, that the hope is that now with that being so popular, it's different from audiobooks because you're, you're essentially telling the entire story through sound. Um, uh-huh. And it's another like new form for me that I really like. So I have my, you can tell, I have my fingers in a lot of different pies and I'm trying to, you know, find the one that will work and make it happen. Um, who are some of your influences right now, your favorite writers or creators of any kind? In terms of literary, uh, you know, Julia Alvarez, another Vermont writer, mm-hmm. is, is a huge influence of mine. She's also a very elegant person mm-hmm. and good human being. Um, Stephen Graham Jones. Oh, yeah. Oh, love his work. I mean, Gabino Iglesias, who actually just started teaching for us, who's a um, Puerto Rican writer in the in the West, who's who's writing uh, Barrio Noir, he calls it. Oh, cool! Very dark horror. Um, and these, you know, I that's what I sort of read to, to you know, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just finished Silvia Moreno Garcia's. Um, she wrote Mexican Gothic, which I loved. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, Colonialism as fungus. It's wonderful. Oh. And her new book is called Doc, the, the Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which is based on a movie I loved when I was a kid. So I, I you know, I, I have my, my reading list. I also switch from like middle grade and YA to adult. I go back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, but those, the biggest influences of my writing, I would say, were Allende, um, Isabel Allende, uh, Julia Alvarez, Marquez, Garcia. That's why magical realism um, came into play with Storyteller's Death, because mm-hmm. that's what I was raised on. Horror and magical realism. <laughs> The Storyteller's Death. Let's, yeah. um, let's talk a bit about this book. Um, it's coming out October 4th. 4th. Very nice. Yes. Okay. Um, will you give us a little summary of the plot? Sure. It's about a, um, a girl called Isla. Um, you're going to see patterns here. Her father dies and her mother's an alcoholic. And she gets sent to her family in Puerto Rico every summer. Her mother sort of sends her off so she can, you know, drink. And um, which is basically what happened to me mm-hmm. so she would spend the summers in Bayamon, puerto rico and her family there would take care of her you know that that, that take her to the dentist do the things that her her mother didn't do um and so um but when she turns you know her life in new jersey is very difficult and she goes has these summers in puerto rico but when she turns 18 um when a storyteller in the family dies she sees their stories as visions and so the only way to stop them is to write them down and so this is this gets they get progressively more interesting. And then her great aunt dies and she sees a story of a murder and it won't go away when she writes it down. So she realizes she has to figure out the mystery her aunt is trying to tell her um, and in order to make them stop before it kills her. So she sort of, you know, digs into that. But it's sort of about my why I identify so strongly with that half of me, um, because though that family saved my life, took care of me at a time when adults weren't that reliable t- in my life. Um, so it's my love letter to that as well. And your first, um, your first literary adult novel, let's say, yes. um, what was it like writing in that voice 
uh, as compared to for for YA or for middle grade? I mean, you get to 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 spend more time in scenes and with descriptions and setting. Um, you know, you you language. Um, magical realism is is a, is one of the identifying factors. Is beautiful language, mm-hmm. ornate, you know, but not unnecessary. And so, though I admired that when I was younger, though I am a spare writer, this was an opportunity mm-hmm. for me to 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 take time um, and to really inhabit a space. Um, and you know, this this is I was I think I think I managed to sort of bring the setting of Puerto Rico, particularly in the seventies, which is when it takes place. Um, sort of, I hope I bring that to the, to the reader. Um, Cause that was important to me, but it is a lush, incredible place. And it was really wonderful to write about it, but it, and it allows you to do the beautiful language mm-hmm. and explore relationships in a way, you, you know, you can in, in kids, but not quite as, as deeply. Mm-hmm. So, um, but again, she's dealing with very similar things. Yeah. Um, tomorrow. It's just that they're, uh, you know, she's older and, and it's in this uh, writing. It also is a retrospective narrator. You can't do that with kids or, or young adults. They're looking back on their life. Mm. You, you know, um, publishing doesn't, kids don't want to read adults talking to them. <laughs> Wonder why, you know? Um, but it was fun. I'm trying to think of retrospective narratives for children where it's like, oh, I'm 11 years old looking back on my life at six. Um, it's hard to, yeah, they don't tend to do it because you gotta be, you, they want to inhabit the character Mm -hmm. and you can't inhabit the character if you're 50 Mm -hmm. and looking back, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just a little different running for adults. Well, would you like to read us a a short passage? Sure. Thank you. Sure. I'll read the opening one. Um, okay. This is from the, the very opening. It's called death in a back room. This chapter. There was always some old woman dying in the back room when I was a child. These women were just an expected part of the decor, like a lamp or a coffee table. I didn't know who most of them were, one ancient relative or another, and each summer I would usually find a new inhabitant. What I've come to understand in the twilight of my own life is that they were a nameless introduction to what would be my long and intimate relationship with death. They were also a doorway to a true understanding of my Puerto Rican family and the gifts and curses that came with them. I was eight years old in the summer of 1970 when I first encountered one of the inhabitants of the back room. That particular day, my cousins and I were running through Tio Ramon's one-story concrete house at top speed, sliding over the slick tiled floors as adult reprimands and rapid-fired Spanish trailed behind us like a kite tail. We had to pass through the last room, a bedroom, before breaking free of the building and barreling into the back courtyard, scattering chickens and dust in every direction. I remember I stopped short at the threshold, staring at the unexpected body on the shadowed bed. My cousins collided into me from behind and seeing my apprehension said in English, don't worry about her prima, as they pushed around me and pulled at my arms, coaxing me to follow them. She can't hear you, vamos. I wanted to follow them, to be so unafraid as to walk through life as if there weren't something horrible waiting for me just out of sight. The smell hit me first, medicinal, antiseptic, stale, like my father's hospital room back in New Jersey, that chemical odor that reached down into my stomach and squeezed. I pulled free of my cousins, my feet rooted to the door sill, their voices fading as they scampered out into the daylight. I looked down at the scrubbed white formica floor, the gray and blue dots forming moving patterns if I stared at them long enough, trying to pull me into their vortex to get me to tip over and fall in head first. 
That's our show, folks. To learn more about Anne Davila Cardinal and her books, visit the show notes at vermontartscouncil.org slash podcast. Vermont Made is a production of the Vermont Arts Council, the primary provider of funding, advocacy, and info for the arts here in Vermont, which is and has always been Abenaki land. Thank you for listening. Thank you.